Before we begin this episode, I just want to say that whether or not you believe the words of Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, what is not acceptable is having someone with clear partisan views on the Supreme Court. Now, I believe Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, but what I know more is how disgusting it is to make fun of someone who has come out about abuse. No matter your political affiliations, Donald Trump is a pathetic excuse for a human being, and that fact was reinforced this week. You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. This episode, we're going to hear about an opportunity for not only new mountain bike trails, but really a, a new mountain bike community. The world is slowly waking up to not only the power of trails, but the value of mountain biking. Whether it's creating a livable city that appeals to industry by attracting employees like Bentonville, Arkansas, or a boomtown gone bust after the mine or mill or factory is closed down, they're looking to rebrand themselves as a destination for tourists. Mountain biking has become a second chance for many communities. In today's episode, we'll be hearing about the process that one town is going through to go from no trails to potentially 150 miles or more of trails. Now, I'm your host, Brent Hillier, and this is episode 48 of Frontlines. I wanted to release this episode a day early for a couple of reasons. If you're listening on the day of release, then tomorrow is October 12th, and the Western Mountain Bike Advocacy Symposium kicks off in North Vancouver, BC. For those that will be there, I can't wait to see you. And if you're in the Vancouver area, at the time of this episode's writing, there are still some spaces available. So have a look at the show notes for a link to the event. You'll also find a link to the 2018 MTB State Summit happening in Grand Rapids, Michigan. That event takes place November 6th to the 7th. Before we dive into this episode's conversation and topic, I want to remind everyone that the show is made possible by listeners like you. Listeners like John, Drew, Rick, and Melissa, who've all made donations via PayPal by visiting frontlinesmtb.com support. Big thanks to all of you for doing that. You can also support the show by shopping on Amazon. Visit frontlinesmtb.com shop and follow the link to your country's Amazon page. If you're looking for a new book, then visit the book club page on the website. I'm currently reading two books right now. The first is The Hidden Life of Trees by Peter Wallabin, a recommendation made by Christine Reed, the executive director of the North Shore Mountain Bike Association. And the second book I'm reading right now, which I've added to the book club recommendations, is Major Taylor, the inspiring story of a black cyclist and the men who helped him achieve worldwide fame. It's by authors Conrad Kerber and Terry Kerber. Here's an excerpt from the book. And for context, it's discussing the early conflicts between cyclists, and at the time called high wheelsmen for their penny-farthing bicycles, and the horsemen of the day. Quote, In the early 1880s, an Ohio legislator was among the first to weigh in proposing punitive legislation after the prize horses had twice been frightened by a high wheelsman. Jersey City ordered that if the driver of a buggy or wagon raised his hand at the approach of a cyclist, this signal constituted a warning that the horse was getting skittish. The gesture repeated was a direct command for the invading cyclist to pull over, dismount immediately, then quietly tiptoe around the sacred beast. 
Not to be outdone, the Illinois legislature floated a bill compelling cyclists to dismount any time they came within 100 yards of teams of horses. Many cities mandated that bikes be saddled with bells, gongs, whistles, sirens, and kerosene or carbide lanterns. And if all those gadgets didn't slow a rider down, the six mile per hour speed limit imposed in some towns did. Some legislators simply couldn't take all the complaints from horsemen. In several urban centers, including Boston, Massachusetts, and Hartford, Connecticut, they went so far as to ban wheelmen from riding their bicycles on public streets or in parks, effectively outlawing all bicycles from those cities. To add further insult, pedestrians, also no friends to the wheelmen, joined with the Teamsters and horsemen to pass laws dictating where bicycles could be used and at what speed. Unquote. Now, this biography tells the story of Major Taylor, arguably the most popular athlete in 1907 and who, in 1899, became the second African-American to win a world championship in any sport and the first to do so in cycling. All of these achievements were made despite living in an era that did not provide Major Taylor with the same rights as his fellow athletes, those fellow athletes who just happened to not be black. Now go to frontlinesmtb.com slash book dash club and purchase the Major Taylor biography. Now, if you want to read more than one book at a time more easily, it's time to grab yourself a Kindle. Check out the link to the Kindle Paperwhite e-reader. Now on with the show. My guest is the grants manager at the International Mountain Bicycling Association, and he joins me from Prescott, Arizona. Hi, Patrick. Welcome to the show. Hey, Brent. How's it going? Good. So your role with IMBA is is grants manager. Uh, What does that entail? So a lot of the work that I do on a a daily and weekly basis is meeting with foundations and funders, primarily those who work in the community health sphere, uh, organizations that are interested in rural economic development and foundations that are interested in public land protection, public land management. So I spend a lot of time on the phone chatting with foundations, explaining to them what EMBA does. Uh, the the mission statement, some of the success stories, what our goals are for the future, and finding out if there's a good match. So with some of these foundations, we find that our missions are very closely aligned, and there's a lot of compatibility. So we try to get to the point of you know understanding what they're about, and them understanding what we're about, and then submitting a proposal. And I also work a lot with major donors. So there, there are a lot of um, mostly anonymous folks out there who like to remain that way. But they, you know, they, they write larger checks to nonprofits because they believe in what those organizations stand for. So we have a major donor program at IMBA called the Single Track Society. And I work with Dave Weens, our executive director. And Dave and I spend a lot of time corresponding with these major donors developing materials that we'll send to them and then making the ask, you know, asking them to support the organization and, uh, and, and make a contribution. So really it's, it's fundraising in, in various ways, but working in the foundation world is probably the biggest piece of what I do. Working with Dave on the major donor component is it's pretty significant as well. And now back in, in 2013, the, the Southern Nevada Mountain Bike Association, which is a, a chapter of, of IMBA, reached out to you with a potential area for development, and it was near Caliente, Nevada. What happened there? Yep, that's correct. So the Southern Nevada Mountain Bike Association, they're an all-volunteer group, primarily based uh, around Las Vegas. They do a lot of great work with the BLM and with the Forest Service and other agencies in the immediate Las Vegas area. 
And they contacted me. Um, I knew those guys anyway. You know, I was friends with them and we'd ride together and such. And they would come to different IMBA events and trail care crews and those things. And they contacted me about a planning process that was getting underway in Caliente, Nevada, which is about two hours, two and a half hours north, uh, slightly east of Las Vegas. And because they're a volunteer group, they felt that they didn't really have the capacity to engage and, and give it the attention that it needed. Uh, that they've all got jobs and other things going on. So they asked me if I would contact the BLM and chat with them about just the opportunities up in Caliente. So I had I well initially had a phone call with them, with the BLM, and then I drove up from Prescott here and met with the BLM field staff, also with uh, just various members of the community, the state park staff, county commissioners, um, city council members, the mayor, uh, a couple of folks from like um, county economic development and tourism groups. And we just had a very, you know, a really positive conversation about the opportunities. And Caliente is a small little town. It's about a thousand people. Uh, the mining economy is, is long gone and they were looking for sort of regeneration and new opportunities. And they're surrounded by quite literally many millions of acres of BLM land really nice terrain. The, the, the town centre on Main Street sits around 4,400 feet and then there are just these ridge lines up to, you know, five, six, seven thousand, nine thousand way in the distance, nine thousand feet. So there's really great terrain. So I spent a couple of days and I drove around with a couple of BLM staff and had just lots of nice conversations and meetings and lunch with other folks in the community. And it really just went from there, you know. That it was it was a very encouraging conversation. Like everyone was really interested and eager and excited about this opportunity. And obviously, we we realized there would be limitations along the way and challenges, but everyone was very excited about this idea of developing a trail system that was close to town and and e easily accessible, and also offered exciting, appealing destination for for visitors to come to. So we really wanted to see something for local residents. So there was, you know, talk of developing a bike park and flow trails that were very close to town, like a, like a, a block off Main Street. And then obviously there are really beautiful remote canyons that are a little bit further out. And for mountain bikers who want that really remote experience in Caliente, you don't have to go too far, like lots of the Southwest, you don't have to go too far from, from, from the Main Street to find that very remote experience. So we just thought the landscape was awesome and the reception from the locals, like people were really, really excited and, you know, they, they liked to see the Imba car come into town and would wave when I drove by and just had a lot of great conversations. And then we had um, several meetings where we just kept, you know, discussing what the opportunities were, how we were going to fund all this. And then we had the, when we had the Imba Trail Care Crew program, we had the Trail Care Crew Jesse and Laurie, they went up to Caliente and did a, a weekend long workshop presentations and got sort of more in depth than, than what I had discussed, but, but on a very similar sort of vein, but they just sort of expanded upon the conversations that I'd had. And people were really excited. That session went really well. And again, it just added to this whole process of people in that area getting excited and understanding and learning about what mountain bike trail development is and what it can do for the community. And there really wasn't any resistance at all. And then we, we decided that we would need to 
do some kind of planning work. So I allocated some money from my budget and that was used to cover another one of my co-workers staff, his time. So he went and spent time in Caliente and started working on some sort of conceptual planning, not really in depth or detail, just big picture. And again, he was very excited about it and we produced a report and presented that back to the various officials in the area and everyone you know, really liked the idea. And one of the sort of takeaways from that was that a more detailed trail plan would be necessary. And then we had to discuss where we would raise the money to do that. Um, and that money came from, we needed about $50,000 to get into the more detailed plan. And those funds came from the BLM they came from the city council who allocated funding from their lodging tax, which I think was one of the pivotal moments when I look back at five years of this project. The city council allocating money from their lodging tax, uh, the bedroom tax, I think was, was definitely one of those watershed moments that really defined the project. And the county economic development agency, uh, Lincoln County Regional Development Authority, it's called, I had a conference call with those guys one evening and they committed $15,000 as well. So we got the, the money to do the trail plan together and then that covered, again, Trail Solutions staff time to spend much more time in the area and really learn a lot more about the canyons and the ridges and, and the terrain overall. And they developed a more detailed plan from, um, from their time there. And again, that was very well received. And we were able to use that for lots of purposes. It was very helpful for the BLM, the NEPA process. You know, they were able to sort of take that information and, and incorporate it into their their federal planning processes, which was great. And then the BLM, sorry, the state parks also used it in their planning process. So that having that document completed, like a really robust trail plan for the region, was again one of those steps that you could look back and say that was. That was a moment that really defined the project. Yeah, I, I want to talk more about the the plan and and what's happening there currently. But but just to kind of back up a little bit, it uh, you know I I oftentimes we we hear about uh, resistance and and um, and on this show as well, we've talked about a couple of situations where there has been resistance, whether it's within communities or, or whether it's big picture, uh, congressional laws out there. And, yeah. um, it's really refreshing to kind of hear something like this, but it's, maybe it's a situation where we kind of just talk about the, the times that we hit resistance and we don't talk about these, these really good opportunities. I'm reminded of, of past guest Bruce Alt said, go where you're wanted type of thing. And, and I, this sounds Sounds like a community that wants mountain biking in it more than than any other community that I've heard of, as far as you know these initial uh, planning stages, which is which is fantastic. What's what's Caliente looking to kind of get out of this? Like, are they? It's a small town. Are they really trying to create something that's going to be for uh, their their locals? Or are they really thinking like this could be a, a destination for mountain bikers to, to come and visit? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, you know, I don't think that uh, I don't think that they want to be Sedona or, or Moab. You know, those are phenomenal destinations, but it's not what Caliente wants to be. So, uh, I was up there just last week, and we had this conversation about um, with there's a woman involved in the project who's with the University of Nevada Extension Program, Holly Gatsky, and she's instrumental in the the whole program. 
And we had a conversation just last week about what they want to be and who they want to attract. And my, my recommendation to them was that, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to develop or pitch Caliente as the most difficult mountain bike trails in the world, because obviously that only attracts a very small um, amount of people. There's only a certain amount of people in the, you know, triple black diamond category. And so we, we talked about how, you know, we want to attract kids and families and visitors who are maybe in the Southwest region on a week long trip in their sprinter van or they've, they've flown out from somewhere on the East coast and they're hitting several destinations. You know, they're riders who are maybe new to the sport, but looking to uh, expand their, you know, expand and try greater challenges, but not necessarily the most extreme end of the scale. So the kids and families who are on vacation, who are in South the Southwest, who are in Southern Utah, who are maybe visiting Las Vegas, uh, they're in Northern Arizona, they're visiting the national parks, they're on a family trip. That was really what we dis- what we talked about. Who would like to attract to the area, and folks who want to come and spend, you know, a day or two. And when I was there last week, for example, I rode the new trails in Barnes Canyon. That's one of the focus areas for developing the new trails, and it's maybe a ten minute drive off Main Street. The BLM are developing a parking lot and camping areas, and the about twelve miles of trails have already been built there. And they were really fun. I rode them last week. And it, to me, it, what, it, what it showed was that you can have this very iconic Western riding experience with amazing views and geology and landscape and, and wildlife and the mesas and, and such. But you can do it 10 minutes out of your car. You don't have to, you know, it doesn't have to be an all day commitment to go and get that experience. And I think that's great for visitors that they, they, they can come and have this, this sort of Wild West experience, but they're still going to be able to do a, a, a loop that brings them back to their car at the trailhead where their tent is, and they're not sort of getting into some massive commitment like the whole enchilada. Like, I love the whole enchilada. It's one of my favorite rides, but I wouldn't recommend it for beginner families to go and have that as their, their quintessential Moab experience. So I think that Caliente will offer... An opportunity to have those really cool Western experiences and riding up on top of the mesas, seeing the very unique vegetation that only exists in the Southwest, but not necessarily doing so in a way that's, um, you know, that they're going to be uh, exposed to extreme, extremely difficult terrain or, or really dangerous territory that they're getting into. They're going to go out and enjoy it as a family and they're going to want to stay and come back for another trip at another time. That's That's what we... When we talked last week, we decided, we not decided, but we sort of focused on wanting to bring those families who are already riders or beginners wanting to challenge themselves. And then certainly family members who enjoy a longer ride, who want to go and do 20 or 30 miles or a 40 mile ride. That's, that's who we're looking for. Barnes Canyon. Um, there's already uh, some trail that's been built over there. Uh, at what point uh, are you at? How many, uh, how many miles of trail is, uh, is built right now? Yeah, in the Barnes Canyon area, there there's 12 miles that's built. The trail crew, BLM trail crew, will be back this fall, and they're going to build like another three miles. So that piece, that zone itself, will be about 15, maybe 17 miles by this fall. Then 
The BLM are currently accepting proposals for construction for a couple of other pieces. One is a nine-mile section that would connect Barnes Canyon over to Kershaw Ryan State Park. There's a state park. It's up a little side canyon just off Main Street. And I, I slept there last week in the back of my truck. And it was awesome. Like Mountain bikers are going to love it. Like To, to wake up in, in Kershaw Ryan State Park is going to be really cool. It's a pretty tight little canyon with you know nice tall red canyon walls all around. So there will be um, a trail from Barnes Canyon connecting over to Kershaw Ryan. And then on the state park property, the, there's about 14 miles getting built there in three phases, probably over the next like 18 months or so, starting in September this year. So there'll be 14 in the state park, a nine-mile connection, and then 15 to 17 in Barnes Canyon. Then slightly up higher, there's an area called Ella Mountain. And up at the top of Ella Mountain, it's about maybe 7,000, 7,500 feet elevation. There's a fire tower up there, so there's a really good access road. So there is a trail in the works. The planning has been done and the design has been done. And there's going to be probably somewhere like 15 to 18, maybe 20 miles of trails built from Ella Mountain coming down and connecting to this connector trail that's going from, from Barnes Canyon to Kershaw Ryan. And that will be a, a trail that will be shuttleable. So it will be built in a couple of phases and it's out to bid as well. At the minute, it'll be built in a couple of phases, focusing on sort of making the, the logical connection first, building the lower piece first that will connect to other trails and then gradually working up the hill as, as the crews can get to it. So there's, um, there's definitely a, a lot going on up there. You know, it's a very progressive project and the BLM are putting funds into it. We were able to, to assist with securing a lot of money for the construction and the BLM also have a, another planning process in the works that, you know, eventually there could be, a, literally there could be a couple of hundred miles total in the next, you know, 10 years or so, if, if it all keeps going at this at this rate. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, with a space of land this large, like how do you decide where to stop? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's it's amazing that I'll have to get the exact figure, but the BLM office in Caliente, like they... Their district is, it could be like 5 million acres or something, like it's absolutely enormous. And one of the first things that I said to the to the folks when we when we had our initial meetings, you know, there, you could put, you could put trails anywhere, like there's, there's great terrain all over, but I said, there's not really much, if you want to see visitors coming and, and seeing those impacts in the little town, you want to see people in the restaurant and in the supermarket and staying at hotels and staying at the state park you know if you build if the trailhead is is when I mean, you could build a trailhead that's literally 75 miles up a dirt road and but you could build the best trails in the world up there but you're not going to get the volumes of people going to it and you're certainly not going to see the impacts on on main street with the businesses so we we discussed that you can again getting back to this idea of having this iconic western experience because it's a series of, of ridges like working their way out from Main Street and getting progressively higher elevation, you can be you could be two minutes off Main Street and you can be in what feels like a really, really remote location. Like this connector that's going from Barnes Canyon over to Kershaw Ryan, like it, it kind of parallels Main Street, but it's like one or two ridges away. And it's gonna be awesome. Like it's gonna feel like a very remote location, but 
I know it, it crosses a it crosses a, a road called Spring Street, which is just right off Main Street. And so it's going to be really cool to know that you have you're having this really what feels like this very wild backcountry experience. But there's also an opportunity to you know you can jump out if you need to get back into town to fill up your camelback or you know go to the supermarket or call it a day maybe you're done and you're you've done your 18 miles and that's all you want to do so yeah it's a, it's a pretty amazing it's a pretty huge landscape but we focused on let's develop trails that people can get to and still have this very this very wild experience but they can also get back into town quickly as well well, it's it's definitely an area I'm I'm excited about, and and you know I'm looking forward to to hopefully getting out there soon. You know, with with um, Vegas is a, is a hub, right? You know, we don't necessarily think of it as being a hub for for mountain biking, but it's a it's a very affordable place to fly to. Yep. And uh, and St. George's is is not far from that. A quick detour, and uh, and you can hit up Caliente before you even get to St. George's, which is uh, which is pretty cool. Yeah. How so? Kind of thinking, um, you know scaling this let's say you know how can we find areas of opportunity like this elsewhere you know is it uh is it a case where we just kind of have to accidentally stumble across a community that that is trying to figure out what to do or, or can we try to be more active in in finding these opportunities yeah that's that's a great question and in the southwest you know i would say that there are phenomenal opportunities for more of these types of projects and I have found that in, through my role as regional director for the Southwest, like, like you said earlier, you have, to, you, you have to decide where to stop. You know, there's just so much land. And we have, got, we have had a phenomenal reception in the Southwest from land managers and from, also from like municipal officials, county commissioners, uh, economic development agencies. And I, I get the sense that people have seen and heard about this project just because I've gotten phone calls out of the blue from from similar agencies in, in other communities that are that want to do something similar. So it gives me the idea that, okay, people have heard about it and they're doing their research and there are lots and lots of opportunities. So from, from an Ember perspective, you know, we have, there are no shortage of projects that we could be doing in the Southwest and we have to, we have to be sort of practical with what we can take on. And I'm, I'm pretty, um, pretty candid with folks about, the need for funding for these projects. You know, it's not that EMBA has endless resources. We certainly have the experience and can help guide the pro the process and we can give advice. And certainly if funding's available, we can allocate staff to do the planning. But, you know, whenever I talk to groups, I use Caliente as an example because maybe they're not familiar with where the money could come from to do this. So I use Caliente and say, you know, the funding came from the County Economic Development Agency and the funding came from the city lodging tax and the BLM allocated some funding for planning. And, you know, maybe they, maybe they have funds in those sources and maybe they've been used in the past for other purposes. Maybe they're used for, for advertising or, you know, magazine adverts or something. But we have, I have, you know, can think of other examples where we've been pretty successful in letting folks know that using funds from those sources for trail planning can be really good in the long run it might not be the it might not get you the the billboard immediately off the interstate that people want to see but it can lay a foundation for really good trail planning and really good trail development in the in the years ahead so yeah there are there are lots of opportunities in the southwest and 
we get contacted a lot. And this idea of rural economic development is something that Imba really focuses on. Um, I had a, had several meetings in, in the past two weeks with with funders who have a specific interest in this process, and they they have they have the funds to help communities, and they see the trail planning is one of the pieces of that puzzle of creating really vibrant downtowns and and you know destinations in the southwest area. So we have a lot, I have a lot of follow up to do. I have various various groups that I'll be talking to in the, in the coming weeks and months to try and secure funding to do similar projects in other places, maybe maybe northern New Mexico. Um, that's an area where we've got a group that's very interested in funding trail development work, and we have great relationships with a couple of the agencies over there. A couple of the federal partners are interested in having Imba come in and do some planning. So I'm, I put the pieces together. You know, I try to make the connections with the funder, and then because we have those solid relationships with the land managers, they sometimes don't have the money or maybe have a piece of it. And if Emba can be the organization that brings additional funds together, that's, I think that's our, that's our job. Uh, so funding is, is obviously a, a huge piece of this. And you, you've kind of mentioned some of the, the funding sources for this project, but, but what other funding sources were, were there to make this happen? Yeah, so the the initial funding for planning was was mostly local, came from the community and the various agencies. Then we had a very a very frank conversation that to build something of this scale that's going to be you know quality mountain bike trails built sustainably and and appealing to riders, we were going to need some big funds to do that. And the BLM office in Caliente were familiar with. A BLM program, a funding program that exists throughout Southern Nevada, and it's kind of a mouthful. It's called the Southern Nevada Public Land Management Act, SNPLMA for short. And that that program, in a nutshell, the BLM sell parcels, um, sort of in the, around the Las Vegas area, and the 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 proceeds from those sales go into a fund that can be used primarily in Lincoln County and Clark County, which are the two southern counties in Nevada. One of the things that the funds can be used for is community development. So they can be used for trail planning. They can be used for developing parks and and conservation and those types of programs. So we were able to tap into those funds to develop the trail. So myself and a woman called Stana Hulbert. She was the mayor at the time and really, really supportive of the project. Stana and I did a presentation to the the Southern Nevada Public Land Management Act board down in Las Vegas, and we presented about the bike park and the flow trails. And the result of that was half a million dollars. It was a grant of half a million dollars to build those trails. Then the BLM office also applied internally for some of those funds to pay trail crews. And I think they received somewhere in the region of a million dollars to pay pay trail crews to build. Then in the state park, they were able to tap into the RTP, which is a federal program called the Recreational Trails Program. And it operates in every state. It's federal money that comes down to typically like the state parks department or the Fish and Wildlife Department in, in any state around the country. So the state park in Caliente, Kershaw Ryan, they were able to tap into their state funds from the recreational trails program. And that's what's funding the like 14 miles of trail development 
in the state park and obviously it's all connected like these the blm trails and the state park trails all connect they're funded through two different pots of money but i think there's probably been about maybe 1.75 or maybe two million dollars has been has been secured for trail plan or trail construction which is pretty pretty significant how can people find out more about uh, about caliente and and how can they get in touch with you yep they can get in touch with me um you know my email address is patrick.kel at imba.com and it's on our on our website um and the Caliente project, you know, Lincoln County, Nevada. Uh, if you if you Google mountain biking in Lincoln County, Nevada, you'll start to find information. And you know, the the, the folks in Caliente, they're they're very passionate about this work and this project, but it's quite new to them. So they're they're getting their their um their hands around what it means and you know what kind of materials they need to develop. So if someone if someone goes to Caliente or if they if they find a website about it i would say don't expect to see the same level of infrastructure and and supporting materials that you would if you were trying to plan a trip to moab you know like there's the 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 shuttle services don't exist the uh the bike shops don't exist but the community wants to develop those things so i think there's a lot of potential but all the the sort of the support services and the mountain bike community and the mountain bike culture It doesn't exist yet in Caliente, but it's starting to grow. So I would ask folks just to keep that in mind if they're they're looking to go there. Expect to find a community that's in its very very early stages of, of developing awesome mountain bike trails rather than going to somewhere that has a really, really well developed program. Well, Patrick, thanks so much for taking the time to, to chat with me. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. It's been great to, great to listen to your podcasts and definitely appreciate the opportunity to talk about what we're doing. Like always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesMTB. You can send me an email or audio file to info at FrontlinesMTB.com. You can stream the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and YouTube. And if you haven't done so already, leave a review on wherever you get the show. It helps others find the podcast. Don't forget to support the show via PayPal. You can find a link in the show notes. Along with a link to the Frontline's MTB Book Club, where a portion of any purchase made on Amazon after following those links will be sent to the podcast. Check out the show notes for a number of links relevant to this episode, and you'll also find a link to an Amazon wish list if you're curious about what kind of equipment is needed to bring this show to new places. I'm still finalizing the details for next episode. If everything goes according to plan, I'd like to focus on politics, and not trail politics, but what happens when trail advocates run for office. Very soon, British Columbians will be going to the polls to vote in our municipal elections. And November 6th in the United States is election day. From all of us in Canada, after what happened in the Senate last Saturday, we'll be watching that day very closely. Quick update on last episode, the trails in the Bitterroot area have been closed to mountain bikes once again. It's extremely unfortunate. The deadline to submit objections is November 19th. There's a link in the show notes on how to do that. Please support Lance and the Bitterroot Backcountry Cyclists by submitting your objections to the U.S. Forest Service. Music, as always, is by Lee Rosevere. Production notes by Jennifer Pride. Artwork is by Brandon Gallagher-Watson and BGW Creative. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening, and happy trails.